ओम नमो भगवते वासुदेवाय ओम नमो भगवते वासुदेवाय ओम नमो भगवते वासुदेवाय So that would, of course, he might have chanted 16 rounds before he did that. Often, even Prabhupada would call devotees, even early in the morning, and preach to them or engage them in some activity, discuss some management matter with them. So there are there are various guidelines, but it's not a stereotype. One guideline is please don't put your hands in or on your mouth. Keep it away. When you eat, put your hand in your mouth. Otherwise, keep it away. Here's a genuine proverb said that the mouth is more contaminated than the anus. Because most of the, actually most of the germs, most most diseases, infectious diseases, they're mostly by breath, isn't it? So there's so many germs in the mouth. So as soon as you touch your hand to your mouth, it's contaminated. You're supposed to wash it. All right. As I was saying yesterday in Hyderabad, we're actually... You're supposed to learn all these things and then practice Krishna Bhakti things like not putting your hands in your mouth. These are basic things. Otherwise, everywhere you go, you contaminate everything. So, this is preschool. Now we'll go up to the post-PhD standard, Bhagavatam. First we should learn. First we should go to kindergarten. Both things are going on simultaneously. Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 3, Chapter 13, Text 44, Translation and Commentary by His Divine Grace Srila A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada, Founder Acharya Aviskam. Vidhun Vata Veda Mayang Nijang Vapur, Janastapa Satya Nivasino Vayam, Sakashiko Dhuta Shivambu Bindu Bhir, Bimrijamana Brishamisha Pavitaha, Seems as in other parts of India. Don't see. But it's very common. Throughout India there are so many pigs wandering around the streets. They like to go in the drains. We don't like to go in the drains, but they like to go in the drains. Especially they like to go in the drain where the stool is passing early in the morning. And they'll be standing there waiting for the stool to come and then they eagerly 
catch it and their mouths and eat it. So that filthy drain water is on their body and they like that. And when they come out, you see, they'll shake themselves. So you don't want to be anywhere near when they're shaking themselves because all the filthy, dirty water comes. And even if, even if the drain water was somewhat clean, which is not very common, just the fact that it's coming from the body of a pig makes it disgusting. Whatever bad feelings Hindus have for Muslims, and we don't promote any such thing. But at least they have to admit that there's something good in Islam. They don't like pigs. They don't eat pork. And they don't, they consider a pig very contaminated, whereas some Hindus eat pigs. What to speak of other things. So a pig is uh, extremely contaminated. Practically the worst insult you all know. In Hindi language, I don't know in Telugu. But the worst insult is to suggest that someone was born from the womb of a pig. Now the pig is an extremely contaminated creature. But here, it's stated that they're highly purified. The sages who themselves are highly purified. Which is why they're living on Janaloka, Tapaloka, Satyaloka, the three topmost planetary systems beyond the Indraloka. These are the planetary systems, Janaloka, Tapaloka, Maharaloka, Satyaloka. Three of them are mentioned here, of the four topmost planetary systems, where everyone is practically a Paramahamsa. They're very highly elevated, and they're engaged in austerities, as is suggested by Tapaloka, the very name of the planetary system. They're simply engaged in austerities for purification, here they're saying that we feel we have become highly purified by the water which you have shaken off your body. And the Lord came out of the, the Lord in the form of the pig incarnation, Varaha Avatar. The very word Varaha means pig. Boar. Boar, Varahi is female pig. There's a distinction. So the very uh, name means pig, but this boar incarnation, the highly purified members of the higher planetary systems feel that we have become highly purified by the water which you have shaken off your body. So you can imagine the effect of his shaking his body, that the water spread throughout the upper planetary system. So he's no ordinary pig. He, elsewhere here in Bhagavatam is stated, Padivaraha. He is the first boar. Now the first boar is Lord Boar. 
the Supreme Personality of Godhead. In this material world, whatever pigs may be there are perverted reflections of the Supreme Lord who takes this form, which just as the form of the Lord, Varaha, is so much purifying. So in the same way, the form of the pig in this material world is contaminated. Now there is a theory which Bhaktisiddhanta Thakur, I believe, gave the, gave the word to this of, of uh, zoomorphism. It may be in the English dictionary, but it may not be also. Based on the word anthropology, Anthropomorphism. So, zoopomorphism. Anthropomorphism means that we have imagined God to be in the image of man. In the Bible it's stated that God, Prabhupada sometimes used to quote this, that God created man in his own image. But, idiots like Freud and others, they have theorized that man has created God in his own image. Freud had the spectacularly foolish theory that because the idea is there, given by Darwin, another incredible fool who is accepted as the leader of the fools of the modern age, So Darwin's theory, as we all know, is that once upon a time there was a monkey whose child had less hairs on its body and it was more intelligent than the others. And then uh, this mutant was running around the jungle and met a female mutant with similar features and His name was Adam and her name was Eve. And that was the beginning of the human race. So, based on this misconception, Freud gave the understanding of how God came into existence. That the early early man was a jungle hunter. So, They used to go around in packs with one man who dominated all the women, just like you see monkeys, a gang of monkeys. There'll be one male monkey and all the females. So Freud came up with the brilliant idea that there was one in these primordial men who came out of the primordial soup. There was, in each pack, there would be one boss who was in control and he dominated all the women and naturally he had many sons and they were all afraid of him because he was the biggest and strongest. But at the same time, they had some affection for him but they were very afraid of him. Because if they did anything he didn't like, he'd hit them on the head with his club. 
So according to Freud, modern theology, belief in God has evolved from within our genetic path. Of course, they didn't have such developed understanding. But his idea was that in our subconsciousness, we remember from it's been passed down since that time that we're thinking there's some big, strong leader who we're afraid of and we have some affection for him. And that person we have chrismed as God. Of course, this is totally based on the Christian concept of God because the Hindu concept of God, well, there are so many different concepts, but uh, not very much like the Christian concept. So this is Freud's idea that God is a product of man's psychological need to have a strong father. That's another one, that belief in God is a psychological crutch for people who are not strong enough and psychologically strong enough to face the world. That's another psychological theory. So this has come anthropomorphism, that we have imagined God to be something like man. So a similar theory, zoomorphism, that we have considered that we have considered that here's a genuine proverb said. When the class is going on, the curtains close, just go on listening. Don't bow down. Here. Said it more than once. So this theory that we have imagined God to have various forms, such as Keshavadrita Shukara Rupa Jaya Jagadishare, that the Supreme Lord has a form, assumed the form of a hog, or the form of a half lion, half man, or the form of a swan, or also we see that among the demigods there is Ganesh who has an elephant head. So there is a theory that we have imagined. We've seen some animal and we thought that, well, God could also be like that. We find among the recorded conversations of Srila Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati there was one Professor Sadhas of Ohio University who challenged Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati I met with him. And, of course, the Europeans in those days were extremely smug. So they thought that there was there's nothing to there's nothing to discuss even with Hinduism because it's just so foolish. Barbaric. They imagine God to be some pig or half lion, half man and they have these fantastic stories. Of course in the Bible there are also stories of God appearing as a burning bush. And so many things which don't equate with modern science. But they, they presume that this, this Hinduism, it's, it's, it's just barbaric. We have to educate the Hindus. First of all, we have to teach them English. 
you learn some decent language. Otherwise, what is the hope for their elevation? Unless they learn English. Then they can read Shakespeare and Wordsworth. Even one of them, one famous Britisher said that that even even any any single novel in the English language is far more valuable than all the Vedic literature put together. <laughs> James Bond. So puffed up. So this Professor Southers, he had heard that this he was he was visiting India to study comparative religion. Comparative religion means they com- in those days it meant that they compare all the religions and they say that Christianity is the best. That's already understood before they start to study. So he'd heard that this Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati was a great scholar. So he went to visit him and immediately he started off, well, you see, uh, all the standard challenges or not even challenges, scoffs. You see your Krishna appears to be immoral and, and then you see you say that God appears as the form of a pig and different forms. Bhaktisthan Sasuritako just flattened him. Intellectually flattened him. Said that from the beginning you can't understand what is the transcendental nature of God. The transcendental nature of God cannot be understood from your... He used all these long words. I'm trying to remember. Uh, anthrocentric point of view. He, he accused... The, that one accusation is anthropomorphism, then zoomorphism. So, ethnocentric. That you are, you are seeing the human race as this... Actually, you should say... Eurocentric. That we're considering the European. At that time especially, they're extremely puffed up. They were considering that Europe is advanced in science and technology and all knowledge and the, the rest of the, the non-Christian world is in the darkness of oblivion. So he couldn't imagine. He'd heard that Bhaktisiddhan was a great intellectual so he thought that it's not possible. I have to go and just put him in his place. But what happened actually, Bhaktisiddhanta Sasarataka absolutely flattened, intellectually flattened him. He said, from the beginning, he said, you cannot understand. You shouldn't even begin to try to understand. By the empiric process, you cannot understand God. God has his transcendental activities, which can only be understood from the transcendental platform. You are not even. You shouldn't even try to discuss. It's. It's. You're. You're certain to misunderstand. Just as uh, five-year-olds, they may hear the words atomic physics. And so they can discuss among themselves. But no person, no one of any intelligence will take them seriously. 
So in the same same way, uh, if you're not educated in the science of God, you may discuss it and you may come to some conclusion. Five-year-old, I'll, I'll give an example from my personal experience. Once I was traveling on the train from Thailand to Malaysia. So some young man from England was on the train also. And he was young and foolish. The two often go together. Not necessarily, but the, often they go together. So he told me that I'm going to become a great author. There's someone, he gave the name of some famous author whose name I don't remember, but he wrote so many stories which are full of sex and crime and he became a very famous author. I didn't read his books, but anyway, he said the name. So he said, actually, anyone can write like that. It's, you know, you just tell some stories about sex and crime and I'll also become a, a multi-millionaire by writing books. So I didn't bother to say anything. He's a fool. Obviously, the, the demon who wrote the books, he had some special, he had some ability. His writing was something special. Otherwise, there are so many people writing books. Every day, some more than thousand books are published in the English language alone. But not every, even to get published, it's not so easy. To find a publisher to sponsor, because publisher means they want to make a profit. So you have to see that you have to think that this book is going to sell. So among those that are published, not that many are, not all of them are profitable. But he was thinking, well, I'll just write a book and, you know, I'll also become a multi-millionaire author. As if there are not hundreds of people trying to do the same thing. But some, of, some among them, he became successful. He, was, he had some better ability than others to express sex and crime. So I didn't bother to speak. Why should I bother? He's a fool. Why should I Why should I try to convince him that he's a fool? Let him find out for himself. So in other words, I, how can you take such a person seriously? So it's easy. I'll just write a book and I'll become a multi-millionaire. So the same way... Uh, why should we take seriously? So many people say so many things. Recently also someone sent me an email that, well, when I'm preaching, people say to me about this one Shastri from Maharashtra who has a large following in Gujarat. So how should we counteract? You know, what should we say? How are we to understand so I wrote some short rebuttal of his different points. He said, for our own understanding. Then he wrote another one. And I said, so then I wrote back and said, look, if you're going to write me every day, I'm going to be busy every day because there are millions of these people. There are so many bogus people. So how to defeat them? You take one verse from Bhagavad Gita, which will apply to all of them. It's in chapter 7, I believe it's text 14 or 15. It goes like this. Namam duskutino murha prapadyante naradamaha maya pahritagyana asurambhava mashritaha 
Those who don't surrender to me, Krishna says, they're all rascals. There are four categories. It means fools, lowest of mankind, those who are apparently intelligent, but whose actual knowledge is stolen by illusion, and out-and-out demons. So if you want to go to the trouble, you can take the names, the hundred most prominent demons in the world today, and classify them. This one is Amura, this one is Naradhama, this one is Maya Aparitagyana, and this one is Asurambharamashita. If you want, you can go to the different. You can just see. People are saying, well, I believe in this Baba or this Baba. Or... You just see. What is this? Classification 1, 2, 3, 4. And then again he wrote back, well, what about this one? He said, look, you do your own work. Here, this is the blanket definition of all of them. They're all simply fools, rascals and demons. According to Krishna, if we are to accept Krishna's definition. So, this is how to understand. We are hearing Srimad Bhagavatam. Srimad Bhagavatam is meant to be spoken among devotees. As yesterday, I was quoting that verse. That Krishna is speaking about Bhagavad Gita. Idang tenata paskaya na bhaktaya kadachana nata nacha susru shaveva chan nata me yobhisuryati this Bhagavad Gita, Krishna said, is not meant to be spoken among those who are not devotees or those who are envious, those who do not listen submissively. So this description of Lord Varahadev, it's actually not meant for you. If people challenge, we can say, first, you don't discuss. You hear Bhagavad Gita, try to understand. It's not actually for you. You can tell people. You don't challenge about this. It's not for you. You're not advanced enough to understand. Just take it like this. Just like if you want to cha- if you want to challenge, well, I don't believe in Einstein's theories. Well, what do you know about Einstein's theories? You you can't even understand what they are. So how can you disagree with it? There's no meaning to your disagreeing with it because you, you don't understand. First of all, you have to understand something, and then you can intellectually decide whether to accept or not. But if you don't understand it, then if you dismiss it, then it's simply dogmatism or fanaticism. So you don't, you, anyone challenges like this, you say, this is not for you. You don't understand this subject matter. First you, you hear Bhagavad Gita and understand, and then we'll discuss with you. What is the meaning? We can discuss. If someone is Shastravit, we understand it. Not understand, he has some knowledge, at least superficial knowledge of Shastra. We can discuss. But then we'll discuss on the basis of Shastra. Just like when scientists discuss their different theories, they have so many different theories. But they discuss, there are certain, there are certain ground rules for discussion. There are certain accepted axioms. So in the same way, if we are to discuss the nature of the Supreme Lord, and whether or not he can appear in the form of, of the boar, then there has, to, there has to be discussed on the basis of Shastra, on this basis only. 
Otherwise, uh, people may say, well, it, it just, it's just impossible. How can we believe? How can we accept? It doesn't seem to fit your logic, but your the logic, but logic is not the standard for understanding God. The very beginning understanding of God is that He's beyond logic. If God is within our logic, then what is the meaning of His being God? If He cannot define, if He doesn't go beyond our logic, if He has to con- conform to our logical theories, then what is the meaning of Him being God? If God is such a being that He can be measured by us, then He's not God at all. He's just another product of the material creation. You say, well, I don't think it's scientific, your description of God. That's exactly correct. He's not scientific, according to the terms of mundane science. Because mundane science is incapable to measure God. That is the very definition of God. If God is measurable by mundane science, then what is the meaning to him being God? If he cannot defy the laws of physics, then what is the meaning of him being God? So discussion of the nature of God, from the very beginning, people may say, I don't accept this on scientific grounds. But from the very beginning, the scientific grounds, that's got nothing to do with the science of God. When we come to understand God, then immediately we retire all the laws of science. Because that is only for describing the material world. But the very nature of God is that He is transcendental. The laws of science do not apply to Him. So your epistemology for understanding reality is from the beginning incapable of approaching God. You have made the mistake from the very beginning. Your very beginning mistake, the empiricists make, of accepting only that knowledge which they can empirically verify. Of course, there's so much in modern science which is empirically not verifiable, it's simply theoretical. But it is a mistake to consider that knowledge, all knowledge can be, just like that Sanskrit saying is there, hastamala. You can, just like you can grab a uh, amla, fruit, in your hand. So if we think that all knowledge we can, can we can grasp in our brain, just like we can grasp an amla fruit in our hand, that is from the beginning a misunderstanding. Because knowledge is unlimited. What to speak of knowledge of God, who is by nature, the very meaning of God is that He's unlimited. So we should not try to We shouldn't imagine that we can understand God as maybe we can study uh, an amla fruit. We can analyze what what are the different constituents and components, how much vitamin C, and what what is the, how is it cultivated, what is the planting season, which soil is favorable for its growth. We can, we could pretty exhaustively study amla fruits. You could write a book. And within that book, you could more or less exhaustively cover the subject of amla. Which genus or it is, it falls within the amla plant. What is the average lifespan and what is the geographical distribution which kind of soil it grows in, and then 
cultivation of the amla plant, and then harvesting of the fruits, use of the fruits, medical uses, both internal and external, and then uh, then uh, chemical bio, biochemical composition. You could even put a few recipes, how to make your own amla oil at home, how to make amla pickles, and you could have one book, be quite a big book, the amla book, the book of amla, amalaki, and that would more or less exhaustively cover the subject. But God, I think we can make one such, the book of God, everything here. Actually, there is such a book. It's called Bhagavad Gita. But it does not claim to be exhaustive. It is inclusive. Everything is there, but not exhaustive. How is that possible? How can it be inclusive and not exhaustive? Inclusive means everything is included within it, but it's not exhaustive. It doesn't. The topic is not exhausted because it's inexhaustible. Actually, even the topic of amlas is inexhaustible. If you really want to. Any subject. If you want to study one atom within one particular amla plant, where has it been? Where has this atom been for the last one billion years? Which different molecules it's been part of? And how many atoms are there in one amla plant? If you want to study them all. If you want to know everything about every amla that ever existed, who ate it? What is the life history of... You see, on this tree, the, on the ancestor of this tree, five hundred years ago, one amla fell and it was eaten by such and such a person. And how that affected his metabolism, there's no end. By studying one amla, you could get out into the whole field of knowledge, every subject... So the, even material knowledge of any subject. I Years ago when I was a kid, I saw on TV, there was some program about two PhDs at Oxford University. They had spent five years studying one square mile of woodland in England. Five years. So knowledge of any subject is unlimited. To what to speak of knowledge of God? So to understand that knowledge, we have to accept the process, a certain process to understand. If we want to, for instance, if we want to understand the uh, biochemical constitution of amla plants, there's a certain process, we, and we have a certain methodology we have to undertake. There's no use going to the Hubble telescope in California and holding one amla in front of... <laughs> I want to understand what is the biochemical... You can't even focus. I mean, you, maybe you want to take the amla to Mars and then analyze it through the Hubble telescope. But that's not a very sane way of doing it. 
There's a certain methodology we have to adopt in studying any topic. If you want to understand the biochemical constitution of AMLO, how should we do that? You know the best way? Ask someone who already knows. Rather than doing your own research. You can do your own research to verify it if you want. But the actual system is to find out from someone who knows. You get a book and it tells you. This is how it is. And if you don't understand, it may say that of course, uh, AMLA is one. If you wanted to understand the the chemical constitution of, say, soybean oil. So they may say, well, there's so much polyunsaturated fats. You may say, well, what's a polyunsaturated fat? What's the difference between a polyunsaturated fat and an unsaturated fat and a saturated fat? So, how to find out? We can find out from someone who knows. So that is the system also for understanding spiritual knowledge. We find out from someone who knows, who then guides us. According to the standard system of knowledge in understanding. So... Mostly people, they are, mostly people when they come to talk of God, they do so in a childish way. They may be highly educated in other ways, but when they speak, people they come to speak of God, they mostly speak in a very childish way, or they come to a very foolish conclusion. Such as that there is no God, or their local incarnation is God. Foolish. So, therefore, Prabhupada wrote so many books. One time he asked a question to some of his disciples, that why are we putting so much stress on this book distribution? Why are we writing so many books and trying to distribute them? Prabhupada said, because we are giving knowledge to society. So these books are for giving knowledge, actual knowledge of God, the most important subject to human society. Actually, this is highly confidential. Discussion of Lord Varaha. The ordinary person cannot understand. It is not possible. But we can understand by studying Srimad Bhagavatam. And not only studying, but we have to hear regularly also. We should hear regularly from devotees. Those who have understood the subject matter. And then we can also understand. But simply, we may read so many books by so many rascals, and we won't understand. Because the rascals, by definition, they cannot understand God. To them, knowledge of God is closed. So we have to understand Krishna as he is to be understood. That is, bhakti-amavabhijanati, through the process of devotional service. But even in following that, we have to follow very carefully and be guided very carefully. There's a well-known rascal by the name of Vivekananda who gave so many wrong ideas but actually his name intrinsically it's an important name, Vivek. 
that we should exercise vivek. Sometimes people think that bhakti is only sentiment. No. Vivek is also required. Vichar. To understand what is correct and what is not correct. Otherwise there may be so many cheaters in the name of bhakti. Or even ourselves because we are not free from the four defects of conditioned souls. Brahm, Brahma, Vipra, Lipsa, Karana, Patav. This tendency to make mistakes, to be illusioned, to have imperfect senses, and the cheating propensity. So we may cheat ourselves also, or we may be cheated by others, and th therefore misunderstand. So we have to, it's an essential principle of advancement in devotional service. We have to be guided very carefully. Otherwise, the tendency is there to misunderstand. We may think we are understanding. Someone may read Prabhupada's books and say, Oh, I understood. Now I will write a book to enlighten others. Krishna User's Guide. And the very title is uh, opposite, absolutely opposite of Bhakti. And we in the name of teaching Bhakti. So misunderstand and foisting it onto others. I become a guru and teaching others. So how much careful we have to be. Even within our Krishna conscious movement given by Prabhupada. How many times Prabhupada emphasized for our benefit that we have to carefully and closely follow him. Why did he emphasize? Is that his egotism? No. Because Prabhupada knows that he's giving Krishna as he is, Bhagavad Gita as it is. And he knows that others may not be, they may have misunderstandings. And he knew also our tendency to water down, misinterpret, malinterpret, misunderstand. Therefore he emphasized so much on following what he taught. But we see, even within our own movement, sorry to say, but it's a fact that we should be aware of. There are various theories being propagated, which they say is following Prabhupada, or they say, well, it's not the same as Prabhupada, because actually it's a better idea. So many wrong ideas. So we have to very carefully follow, be guided properly. Otherwise, we're always in a very dangerous position. It's very easy to misunderstand. The science of God is by nature, Rahasyam Hiyataruttamam, Krishna told Arjuna. This is the topmost mystery. So if we try to exercise our own misconstrued intellectual analysis, durvivek, wrong analysis, wrong discrimination, then we'll misunderstand. So vivek should be there. But that has to be guided by guru, sadhu and shastra. Otherwise, we're in a very dangerous position. So we're hearing about Lord Varaha how to hear, how to understand, how to present to others if they challenge. Now how can we believe God? You're saying God in the form of a boar? 
how to present them. Actually, practically, we don't present to those who are not faithful. But we present, if such people challenge, we present that actually you don't know, you're not fit to know, you can become fit, but you have to follow the proper process. In the meantime, don't judge from your lower platform. Just like that example. In lower mathematics, we have taught there is no there is no square root of a negative integer. But in higher mathematics, square root of minus one. He says, what are you talking? That's bogus. I'm 11 years old. I already learned in school there's no such thing. And he's telling the mathematics professor. From his level of understanding, actually he needs to understand at that level. But that doesn't mean that his understanding is all-inclusive. Similarly, if you see a pig, filthy, dirty creature, and then you hear God, supreme great, supreme pure, and then we say God in the form of a hog, and doesn't the two things don't go together? I mean, impossible. A pig is by nature filthy, dirty, impure, contaminated, and God by nature is shuddhati shud, is purest of the pure. So how can you say God is a pig? Actually, you cannot. It's a great insult to say so from the lower platform of understanding. But when we come to a higher platform, if we, are, we understand more of the greatness of God, then we can understand how he has accepted the form of a pig, which is nothing at all like the form of the pig. We find Vidvara, that's mentioned in Bhagavatam, the stool-eating pig. Nothing like, something like, means the Vidvara, stool-eating pig, is the perverted reflection of the Adivaraha, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, in the form of a hog. So, some similarity is there. But, on the lower platform, it's not possible to understand how the Supreme Lord actually takes the form, or is, pig. But, nothing like the pig that we know. So, mostly people, they don't even understand the Lord as a form. The Lord is eternally existing in his transcendental form. What to speak of the form of a pig? So they're a long, long way from understanding this. So we'll just tell them that just, you please don't discuss this. Don't make any offense. Very highly elevated transcendentalists, they accept this. Just for now, you accept that this is beyond the scope of your understanding. Then you can begin to understand when you get trained in the science of God. But unfortunately, there are various religious systems which are just meant for elevating people from absolutely animal life, animal-like life, which people take to be the, the ultimate understanding. Therefore, they are trapped within that concept, that, that limited concept. So therefore, this book distribution, 
it's very important to introduce people to understanding of God beyond their very limited understanding. Their understanding is limited not only by their lack of knowledge but by their by their lack of purity, by their sinfulness. So this book distribution is very important. Mostly here in India we distribute to Hindus. But actually we naturally they are more likely to take. But it's also important that we find the ways and means to distribute to all the jivas in human forms. We are not a Hindu movement. We are teaching the absolute truth. There is so much strife between Hindus and Muslims. Now it's a little bit quiet and dumb, but any time it can come up again. And now Hindu-Christian, that's a new... I mean, already in India there's so much between different castes and then between... Canadigas and Tamils in Bangalore and then between Hindus and Muslims and just to add another Mirchi they put in Hindu-Christian Asad Bhavana bad feeling this Rajiv Gandhi did a Sad Bhavana Morcha in Hyderabad Shortly after that, someone expressed their asat bhavana towards him by giving him a quick change of body, sooner than expected. So now they have a Hindu-Christian bad feeling also. It's been introduced. But actually we don't discriminate. We, we, we don't, we, just like when anyone comes, we don't, we don't ask, what caste are you from? Usually people like to know, first, when they get, isn't it, among Hindus when they meet, what is your background, what is your educational background, what caste, and then they put, is he equal with me, above or down? But we only want to see, are you interested in understanding God? You, do you want to understand Krishna? you want to do some service to Krishna? This is how we see. This is our... This is our discrimination. We don't discriminate against, oh, this is a Muslim, oh, Christian, oh, Dalit, oh. No. You want to know about Krishna? Come. You don't want to know about Krishna? You're a very high-class Brahmin? Then please, go somewhere else. We're not interested. So we have to see how to get these books out to everybody. We're not promoting a brand of Hinduism. We're promoting the absolute truth for everybody. Hare Krishna. Is there any question? Yes.
No, they're not disqualified. They're, they're qualified to take to the path of devotional service. They're not disqualified. They're not disqualified from... They are qualified to, be, to take up devotional service. Not at that stage. At a certain stage. But then, having taken up devotional service, then they become purified. They become... Devotees. Dhruva Maharaj is another example. He's a pure devotee. But in the beginning he wasn't. He's given the example. The example is given uh, Aratharati, one who wants wealth, Dhruva Maharaj. The example is given of one who is in distress, Gajendra. The example is given, curious, the sages at Naimesharanya. So, in the beginning they may not have been totally pure. They became purified. Self-realized soul. Well, he, he said about himself, I was situated in the nirgun position. I, I was like an impersonalist. Actually, he's a pure devotee. But he was temporarily like an impersonalist. And then after hearing Srimad Bhagavatam, then his devotional feelings again became manifested. But temporarily he was in the nirgun position. No material interest. That's an interesting point. He had contact with Krishna. But he hadn't heard about Krishna. Only when he heard about Krishna, then he became attracted to Krishna. So that's interesting that hearing about Krishna is, many people say, show me God. But actually hearing about him is more powerful than seeing him to understand him. That's why Bhaktisthan Sarasar Thakur, he was once giving a lecture, then the temple curtains opened and some people are listening, they went away to see for Darsha and he said they're going for eye exercises because if you actually want to see God you have to hear Shutekshana Panta you have to see by hearing as is mentioned in Bhagavatam so hearing is more important to understand than seeing Hearing about him, of course, Krishna, he spoke to him, he heard Krishna, but he didn't take instruction from him.
reading in one of my books, which is that? My memories of Prabhupada. Sahajiyas, they try to take up Madhurya Bhav without proper qualification. But higher than Madhurya Bhav is Audarya Bhav. Audarya means the mood of liberality, which Chaitanya Mahaprabhu manifested, giving Krishna freely to others. Krishna Namobahavadanyaya Krishna Prima Pradayate Krishnaya Krishna Chaitanya Namnigot Shainam. This is Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's mood of liberality. This is the Supreme Lord who is himself Rasik Shekha, the enjoyer of all the Rasas. The, the king of the enjoyers of all rasas, the highest of which is Madhuryaras. So he himself comes in an even more developed form to give that to others. So this Audaryapa preaching, that is even more important than relishing the mellows of Krishna's pastimes. Of course, preaching means to preach about Krishna and his pastimes. <coughs> Sometimes this Parvatam is said that Saraswati Vacha is the daughter of Brahma, but in Vijay Rama is said that Saraswati is sometimes said to be the the, the uh, daughter of Brahma, but originally in the spiritual world she is the wife of Vishnu. She says consort of Brahma. Yeah, consort also. Everyone in this material world is born from Brahma, even his wife, wives, directly or indirectly. Do these ten offenses against the Holy Name pertain only to the Hare Krishna mantra? No, no such thing is stated. Offenses to the Holy Names. Nama Parada, not Mahamantra Parada. Severs, material attachments. It's another fantastic foolishness. My dear Lord, I am praising you, but I don't want to surrender to you. And therefore chanting this Purusha Sukta. Please be pleased with it and fulfill all my material desires. But don't ask me to surrender to you. The Lord accepts our bhavana that we were discussing yesterday. Bhava Grahi Janadana. You can't cheat him or fool him. Yes, yes, yes. 
Artificial humility. Well, we may, it's better to be, to practice humility, even if we don't feel it, than to practice being a puffed up rascal. In other words, you may feel like speaking very harshly to someone, but instead, if you make a practice of speaking to them less harshly, then it, by practice it will become internalized also. Someone recently asked me what to do about anger. I often get angry, irrationally. I start shouting at my wife and children. So I suggested to him that when you feel that surge of energy coming inside, then you chant, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, very loudly. And then you dovetail that feeling like that. And then someone else who was present told me that his father or uncle, someone used to have the practice, that whenever he felt angry at someone, he would tell them, God bless you. <laughs> so I said, God bless you. <laughs> so they could under his children could understand he's angry. <laughs> But it didn't manifest as with, by him beating them. So it's a good practice. Because he'd, he'd understood there was something wrong in his dealings with his own children. He was becoming too angry with them and unnecessarily overly chastising them. So he controlled that by a certain practice. There are certain techniques that are mentioned in Bhagavatam that we can overcome lust by remembering the four Kumaras and this, the whole list. So these can also be adopted. Although real humility comes by understanding the actual fact that we have got nothing to be proud of anyway. We are very insignificant. But uh, even for the sake of living as a decent human being in this world, it's better to practice even if there's some artificiality, it's better to practice good behavior rather than bad behavior. Just like someone was telling me, uh, our ISKCON Chopati Center is well known for devotees, they behave very nicely with each other. And one devotee was saying to me that, well, sometimes it seems to be the way they behave, they're very, they behave very nicely. Sometimes it seems to me like artificial because they're doing it just because everyone else does it, but inside they may be feeling so many bad things. But I was saying that, well, even if it's artificial, it's better than... It's, even if you, as a matter of politeness, you adopt such behavior. I mean, it's not that everyone becomes a Paramahamsa overnight, but it's better than behaving roughly. You know, I should just do what I feel. I feel like I want to call this guy a son of a pig, so I should do it. But no, then that's why children are, why are children trained? They're supposed to be trained in polite behavior because it's better than not. Just this modern idea, if it feels good, do it. This is pig philosophy. The dog 